And I think it's a small miracle that we're all t- here together. I know we had to reschedule because of me. I think I, one of my kids was sick. And, and you were in Vietnam, Crystal? I was in Vietnam. How was your trip? Um, it was really eye-opening. I think um, <laughs> it was exhausting in a lot of ways. Exhausting. We word. visited at least two hospitals a day, and we went to, I mean, we started with rounds and lectures and presentations. I'm Holly Wayman, and this is Pediatrics Now. Today, we're talking about NF1. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, neurofibromatosis type 1, or NF1, is the most common inherited genetic condition affecting approximately 1 in 3,000 kids. NF1 is a multi-system disorder in which some features may be present at birth, but most are age-related manifestations. Most pediatricians and pediatric medical subspecialists, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, follow multiple children with NF1 in their practices, and NF1 has a wide spectrum of health implications. Today we're going to talk about how to identify NF1 and the role of the medical home in caring for children with NF1, and I have here in the podcast studio for Pediatrics Now Today three experts on NF1. Thank you all for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thank you for having (laughs) us. So we'll start with, so that was Crystal Robinson. She has her Psych D and has been in practice as a psychologist for 10 years. Crystal, you work at the Pediatric Hematology Clinic and Oncology Clinic at University Hospital, and your specialty is working with kids who have chronic medical conditions. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's really been, I think, a great privilege to really specialize in hematology oncology after so many years working with various medical conditions. Um, it's, it's really become a passion, and really to work specifically with the genetics clinics has been a real privilege. Also joining us here in the podcast studio is Dr. Shafka Shah, pediatric oncologist who has a focus on neuro-oncology and a leader of the Pediatric NF Program at University Hospital and UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here today with us. It certainly is a pleasure. Also with us here today is Rachel Wyatt Castillo, a certified genetic counselor who works with the UT Health Science Center at San Antonio's Pediatric Hematology and Oncology Department, and you provide genetic counseling services to both children and families. Yes, so I do work with adult and pediatric patients. And you also work with the Gracias program, the Texas program, where you provide high-risk cancer screening and cancer genetic education to underserved communities? Yes, so for that population, they tend to either be underinsured or have no insurance. And for our listeners, could they Google Gracias program, or how do they find where to send their patients to that program if they need it? Yes, Google is your best tool, so you can go ahead and Google UT Health Science Center, Gracias, Texas, and that'll give you all the information you need to refer any adult oncology patients. So let's start today with a case. The patient is a six-month-old seen by a pediatrician for a well-child checkup and vaccines, During the examination, the pediatrician notices cafe au lait spots. It's significant how many spots? Yes, so that is a good question. Cafe au lait spots are the most common feature that we see with neurofibromatosis type 1, or NF1 for short. And there are a number of different features that we can see, but as you mentioned, it is really important to know how many of these are we seeing as well as how large are they. And that does matter does make a difference if this is a pediatric patient versus an adult. And so how many? For, our, for children, we want to know if there are six or more cafe au lait spots and measuring at least five millimeters across. So if there's four spots or five, really don't worry about it? Or, or if you have any sort of doubt or if you see any, is it better to refer? What would your advice be here? I'd say if there's any doubt, then go ahead and refer. Sometimes we won't see the full six um, cafe lay spots of five millimeters, especially if there are other features of NF1 that you're noticing. So if there's a family history of NF1 or if they have um, an optic glioma, freckles, and 
areas of the body that typically don't get very much sunlight, so underneath the armpits or around the groin, then those are other indications that might suggest NF1 could be the diagnosis. Can a a child have freckles under the armpit and it's not NF1, or is that that cause for concern just seeing that? Um, It is possible to see some of these features in someone who doesn't have NF1. It's really more the combination or the frequency of things. So I will say that cafe lay spots are very common in the general population. That's why we say if you're seeing multiple of these or if they're larger, that's something that might be more of a concern. Do you all have any advice on that? Well, I think that's why when uh, a patient is seen by the genetics counselors, they're taking a family history and they're asking about other medical conditions that might help establish a diagnosis of NF1. And I spend a lot of time with community pediatric providers, and I, I get asked that a lot, or even, you know, if there's three, this child has three cafe au lait spots, but I don't, I don't want my patient and the family to be worried, but should I refer what would your advice be? I would say it would be a good discussion point to have with the family that you're not sure what's going on and to gather more information would be the next step. And, and there are many times where um, there may be a significant family history, but the patients are not aware of it. And it's a good genetic counselor that can sit there and talk to the family and elicit that, that history. It can be very useful to have a more focused appointment with a genetic counselor to talk about these conditions. Because honestly, the pediatrician is probably doing a dozen different things at that visit for yes. the well-child visit. It's not just the cafe lay spots that they're hoping to address. But if would you say, Dr. Shaw, and may I call you Shafka? Sure. In an informal group here, um, do you would you say if there's any one of those things that 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 would be a, a good time for that patient to see a genetic counselor? Take that time just to make sure. It is because uh, we know that some of the manifestations of NF1 do develop at a young age. And so we do feel that if there is a concern, it's best to go ahead and have them be seen by providers that have seen many patients with NF1. And it can make a big difference if that child gets care early on. Exactly. And in our community, for example, we know that... um, Oftentimes, a neurologist or an ophthalmologist may get a referral for evaluating a patient for NF1, and they are looking for particular signs and symptoms on their physical exams to help make the diagnosis. That still doesn't mean that you don't need to see the genetic counselor, because the genetic counselor will be very helpful in gathering the entire family history and putting the whole picture together for the family. So would be the, f- the first place to start to start be to see the genetic counselor or and also send the patient to see a neurologist and ophthalmologist? Yes, I think that would be the best thing to do. You know, honestly, it may be a while before the neurologist sees the patient. Because of the wait time or because yes, it's not an just, urgent? There's not that many pediatric neurologists in any community, really, for the number of patients that need to see a pediatric neurologist. So rather than waiting, one thing that could be done is refer to our clinic, for example, where we do have a dedicated day for patients that have predisposition syndromes, and uh, we have dedicated time allotted to evaluate those patients with the genetic counselors, and myself or my chief, Dr. Tomlinson. And not a lot of communities have a dedicated clinic for NF1. Can you tell me a little bit about the clinic at University Hospital? Yes, so we decided um, over the last 10 years or so, we were seeing fair number of NF patients, and um, I definitely had encounters with patients whose uh, maybe one parent or an uncle or someone else in the family had neurofibromatosis, but nobody had spent some time explaining to them what the impact of that could be on the others in the family. And unfortunately, the patients that I saw already had developed tumors in their eyes, and they were Mm. losing vision. And Mm. that was, unfortunately, uh, a problem because uh, at that time, once you have had vision loss, um, that may be permanent. Mm. If the patient had been seen by an ophthalmologist or a neurologist early on and had appropriate screening soon after birth, then um, testing could be done to perhaps identify a glioma and offer chemotherapy treatments. 
to preserve the vision as much as possible. Mm. And it's important for the patient to see an ophthalmologist rather than an optician? Right. So anyone who has had babies at home realized it's very hard to... Um, to do a physical exam on them when you take them for a, a well-child visit. Usually the pediatricians are doing the red reflex test, and that's probably, uh, you know, easy enough to perform. But uh, sometimes a little baby is not that cooperative when you're trying to check their extraocular muscles. So beyond a red reflex and a pupillary reaction, it may be hard to identify um, an abnormality unless it's very severe. And so if someone has cafe au lait spots or axillary freckling, family history of cafe au lait spots, or perhaps tumors in the central nervous system or peripheral nerves, um, it would make a lot of sense to go ahead and call the ophthalmologist and say, hey, I'm worried this patient might have neurofibromatosis. And in the eye clinic, they have all these wonderful bells and whistles that they can use to try and gather the attention of even very little kids. I'm always amazed at how much of a eye exam can be performed, even in babies. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what the training of the ophthalmologist is. It's quite a bit more than what an optometrist is able to uh, provide in their offices. And I think, you know, for many people, if they are just, you know, having problems with farsightedness, nearsightedness, they may never in their lives see an ophthalmologist, but just go to their local store and get uh, eyeglass or contact lens prescriptions. So oftentimes we will see that patients don't quite understand the difference between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist. And so I think pediatricians could be very helpful in uh, explaining to them why they need to go to the next step and get a you know more detailed eye exam with the ophthalmologist who will be looking for signs of um, vision loss and the Lish nodules that are seen on the iris of patients with neurofibromatosis. Um, they have better tools than the pediatricians or I have in the office. Can you tell us about those Lish nodules? So it's interesting, the Lish nodules, we don't really know what what they are. Some people think they are nervous systems. Some people think they're fibrous tissue. But they are um, spots that have a different color than the iris. And so if you have a very dark iris, um, you know, dark brown, almost black, it may be hard to notice. Um, So, again, it will take, like, a very fancy um, otoscope from the ophthalmologist's office to really detect some of these lesions. Uh, Many children with um, neurofibromatosis may develop these as they get a little bit older, so it may not be something that is seen at the time of birth, but it's something that will be developed over time. And it's helpful if the ophthalmologist can see um, the Lish nodule because that will help establish the clinical criteria of neurofibromatosis type 1. Do you think most kids should see an ophthalmologist ophthalmologist, not only an optician? You know, I I don't think in routine practice, but I think sometimes there are red flags that uh, parents will come, you know, maybe a a child is using preferentially one hand, not the other. Sometimes they'll have a subtle tilt to the head when they're trying to do tasks. That would be a red flag. If, you know, if they have any skin findings, You know, one thing that they teach you in medical school is that there are many syndromes within the family of neurocutaneous syndromes. So it may be that you're not just worried about NF1, but there could be other conditions um, that are associated with skin findings that you just can't quite pin down and nervous system issues. What causes the cafe au lait spots? Is there, can you explain that to us? So that also is something that... um, it's a little bit debated, but it, it does seem to be a collection of melanocytes, so skin cells that produce excessive amount of melanin. So that's why the color of them are usually darker than the background skin. And at what age, um, I mean, how do you know it's not a sunspot or, or that it is a cafe au lait spot? So that would be something that I think clinical experience will help you with, and that's why having these patients see providers that clinically see lots of NF1 uh, patients will be helpful. And then, as, as Rachel commented, the size and the age um, 
the number that the patient has will be helpful. What about the head tilt? What would cause that? That could be a loss of vision. So if there was a tumor in the eye, an optic glioma, which typically develops in school-age kids, usually at a, at a young age, some po- somewhere between two and seven years old is the um, age range where you tend to diagnose optic pathway gliomas. And so if they're having uh, difficulty seeing on one side of the eye, they may preferentially use the other, si- uh, the other eye. Mm. And so they're turning their head trying to get a better view of the objects in front of them. Mm. I know um, on pediatrics now we talk a lot about listening, and it's, it's often what the patient isn't saying. It's that being there, being present with the patient and noticing. Exactly, and that's the key to a, a good neurological exam. And so, again, that's also helpful if you are considering the diagnosis of NF1. If a neurologist is able to see, a pediatric neurologist also has a lot of tricks in their bag <laughs> to gather the attention of these children. And so they can also be very helpful in trying to establish if there's a neurological condition. And for pediatric practitioners in the South Texas area, we will put the referral information in the text for this podcast. Why are there so few NF clinics in the country, in the world, and would you recommend travel for patients if there isn't one nearby? Rachel, do you want to take that, or Crystal? Um, I think I can speak a little bit to it. So for a lot of these pediatric specialties, there are a limited number of providers who have familiarity with the condition, and let alone that are all housed within one clinic. So that's something that makes our clinic a little bit unique is that we have um, multiple of the specialists that are recommended for the management and care of someone with NF1 in one location. We're all underneath one medical record system, which is also very important on um, managing a patient properly. And is it Is it not common enough to have more clinics, or what's the reason for that, or do we not know? Um, It is very common, well, for me in the genetic world, it is a very common condition affecting around 1 in 3,000 live births. However, it can also be underdiagnosed, so that's a very common reason is a lot of people, because there is so much variability with having the features of this condition, can go Um, undiagnosed through their lifetime. In our clinic, we often see a child comes into clinic, they end up having a diagnosis for NF1, and then afterwards we go and test the parents and find out one of them also has this condition. So that's something that can also make it seem less common than it actually is. Is it called the NF clinic at University Hospital? Mm -hmm. Is there another name for it? Well, the clinic, um, the program is for uh, neurofibromatosis patients. Um, However, we see patients within the context of the cancer predisposition clinic, um, which is at the same location as the pediatric oncology clinic at University Hospital. Currently on the 10th floor. So, Rachel, I know, um, so after a a pediatrician or pediatric provider sees the cafe au lait spots, uh, maybe at least some freckling under the arm, there's a need for family history? Yes, and also a medical history, because as Dr. Shaw was mentioning, some of these features can change with time. So just because we're not seeing every feature at one age doesn't mean that later on in a patient's life they might develop some of those features. So that's something that is worth noticing. And a lot of the times with freckling under the armpit, for example, it might not be something that they notice in their day-to-day routine. So it can be useful having someone who knows to look at for those um, particular features. Um, And then as far as the family history goes, as we mentioned, there is a lot of variability for every child with NF1 and even within the same family. They might have different features, different presentation, a completely different experience with the condition. So that's something that we want to make sure we're trying to look and see. Even if someone doesn't formally have a diagnosis of NF1, are we seeing other family members with some of the individual features or symptoms that might suggest maybe there is something more going on? So they may not say a cafe lay spot, but they might mention that an uncle has multiple birthmarks or... um, They may not know the exact type of tumor someone had, but they know that 
and one of their parents had a brain tumor or something along those lines, that might increase our suspicion. Hey, maybe this could be more, and NF1 might be something to consider. And Shafka, it's important to highlight and distinguish between clinical and molecular diagnosis? It is very important. I think um, back in the day when I was in medical school, we did not have access to oh, the wonderful genetic testing methods that we have now. So even if you order genetic testing on a patient who had lots of the clinical features of NF1, you would miss it with the testing um, of that time. Currently, we estimate that about 95% of patients with NF1 can be identified to have a specific genetic defect that would relate to helping support the diagnosis of NF1. So things are definitely uh, much better now with modern molecular techniques. However, it is not always easy to read the report of a genetic test, and so I think that's another reason why Rachel and and the other genetic counselors that we have get to know the families and help sit down with them to explain what the results actually mean. And I know we talked about the leash nodules. Is there anything else you want to say regarding that? So there's the leash nodules actually are just a feature that you can see on the irises of the patients with NF1, but they do not impact the function of the eye. They're just a physical feature that support the diagnosis. Now, tumors that affect the optic nerve or even deeper into the brain in the optic pathway, those definitely can impact vision and can also cause problems with growth and development if they're not treated because they can impact on the pituitary and hypothalamic axis, which is very close to where the optic chiasm sits. So those patients are definitely at risk of um, medical issues, and so that's, again, one of the main reasons why we want them to start seeing ophthalmology when they're young and have repeat exams done at least twice a year to look for any growth in potential tumors. Um, Other tumors that these patients can develop are in other nerves. Um, You know, there are nerves all over our bodies. Um, Some are superficial nerves that we can... um, you know, perhaps have abnormal sensation or painful sensations from if the nerves are um, growing and enlarging as they are in the NF1 patients. You might see even even a bump on the arm, for example. That would be a very common location for a cutaneous neurofibroma, um, which is a benign tumor. Um, the tumors also can be more deep-seated, and they can occur in larger nerves, like in your axilla or in your groin or in deeper parts uh, near your aorta. So those um, tumors are also considered benign in many patients, but those neurofibromas are, they can cause more disability and disfigurement. Um, They're uh, termed plexiform neurofibromas. So those are the most more common types of tumors these patients can develop. And rarely, you know, only about under 5% of patients will develop tumors that are you know, malignant that potentially could be life-threatening. And those um, sarcomas typically are seen in young adults, maybe a teenager here or there, but usually young adults or adult age um, patients can develop malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors. And those are very bad-acting, very life-threatening cancers that we don't have the best therapy for, um, but there are you know, there are lots of research programs that are looking at trying to identify uh, targeted therapies and other treatments to help patients that develop this more serious complication. Chemotherapy and radiation and surgery are options. Um, probably the safest in patients that are able to have surgery in which the tumor can be resected completely. Surgeries can be performed even multiple times. The difficulty is that these tumors arise from nerves, and it can be very hard to remove them completely. Pieces of the tumor oftentimes will be left after surgery, and over time they will grow back. And the more malignant the tumor, they will grow back faster. And at some point, surgery alone may not be effective treatment. And so many patients are offered chemotherapy and radiation, Um, But unfortunately, this type of cancer is extremely um, aggressive and does not respond very well. But bottom line, for the majority of patients, NF1 being identified as quickly as possible and getting to a specialty clinic can make a huge difference in quality of life. 
It sure can, and I think the main thing we want to do, especially in the young children, is make sure that they're getting the appropriate eye screening and that they're seeing specialists that are familiar with NF1, so if they start to have a growth or pain that can't be explained, that they get the appropriate imaging to make sure that nothing is being missed. And Shafika, can you talk a little bit about in 2019, the new guidelines, how did that, what do those mean? How did that change things? So um, there has been a big um, push in many uh, inherited conditions to really have groups of, of uh, physicians, researchers, geneticists meet regularly to talk about the risks that these patients um, undergo and to provide specific recommendations as to what age they should have a particular screening tests performed and what kind of specialists should be evaluating these patients. And so um, there was a publication that was put out in the American Academy of Pediatrics journal, so widely accessible to pediatricians that has a nice, um, you know, a, a nice kind of algorithm as to how uh, how to talk to families about this condition and what providers should be uh, seeing these children in in a, in a young age. So, um, and I'd like to move on to Dr. Robinson. May I call you Crystal? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, Crystal, can you tell me about the psychosocial factors, developmental variables, and concerns? Yes, so um, as Rachel and Dr. Shaw mentioned, we are so fortunate to have a multidisciplinary clinic where families can sort of come for their screening, come for their um, follow-up appointments, but also to get the psychology and social work support that we provide in our clinic. So we do know that about 50% of children with NF1 do face learning challenges. Those learning challenges can be quite variable depending on the child's sort of level of development, um, what other, um, you know, psychosocial challenges are, are present. They typically have average intelligence, so when a psychologist or a, a psychometrician in the school does achievement testing, they will typically find that these children do have about average intelligence. Um, however, we do see some challenges with learning in pretty key areas. For example, there may be some, some issues related to their memory, their language. Sometimes we'll see some working memory challenges, and those can really manifest not only behaviorally in school, maybe the child is struggling to learn new concepts, are struggling to stay on task, um, but we'll see commonly comorbid psychiatric conditions that emerge. So for example, ADHD, anxiety, and depression are probably three of the most common mm. psychiatric conditions that run comorbid to NF1. And so proper screening and assessment of those conditions and of those learning needs is really essential at a very early age. And is that part of what you do as a psychologist? Yes, so um, part of my role is really to first, you know, be a part of welcoming the family to the clinic. I think it can be very anxiety-provoking for families to learn that their child has a cancer predisposition syndrome, and sometimes that is the focus, is just, you know, just sort of digesting or processing for the first time that my is at risk for for cancer in any in any percentage. I think that's usually one of the biggest um, sources of stress for parents. So part of my role is sort of welcoming them into this multidisciplinary medical home, providing some early psychoeducation, doing some early screening about, you know, how is the child developing? I've even seen children as young as one or two years old when they're first presenting to clinic to talk about developmental milestones. So is the child walking? Is the child talking? What is their language development like? Because we also see in children with NF ch some challenges related to speech fluency, related to developing their fine motor skills. So part of that screening is can even happen at a very early age in terms of my role of just having that conversation with the parent about where is the child in terms of developmental milestones. And as they get older, they get to sort of more of what you'd call school-age children, then that's where we're focusing more on some of these, you know, psychiatric conditions. We're looking at risk for anxiety, depression, and we're also looking at social skills. So there is some literature that supports the fact that 40% and upwards of 40% of children with NF1 have social deficits and social skill challenges. And the more we see that, the more we see correlates with other mood symptoms and sort of what we call internalizing um, conditions. So 
all of those different variables are going to be part of a comprehensive psychosocial screening. And why does that happen? Is it with children, you know, any small, anything that's slightly different, then that can make it harder in the social um, realm? Or what What do you want to say about that? So it, it's interesting. It, it, we could look at it from a couple of different angles. I think for one, um, what I've seen in children with NF is that sometimes because maybe they have had some delays in childhood, they maybe don't have the same speech fluency or, or fund of language as some of their peers, and that may make interaction difficult. Um, in other situations, maybe they just have not picked up on certain social cues or certain um, um, sort of uh, stimuli, if you will, that would contribute to you know making friends and making connection and sustaining connection. But then the other piece could be some children that sort of just have difficulty with sustained attention on various tasks may tire easily of, you know, maybe engaging in a certain type of play with a peer and they may quickly move on to something else before that sort of meaningful interaction can be um, developed. So I think it could, it could, you know, be different depending on the child. Um, I always tell parents that every case of NF1 is unique. And so even for families that have a good knowledge or background about NF1, I always try to encourage them to think about their child's development differently. So I've seen lots of factors kind of go into those social challenges that can be quite variable from child to child. Is NF1 always genetic? Yes. So NF1 is something that's caused by any harmful changes within the NF1 gene. Um, and by harmful change, that can be a deletion of part of the gene or misspelling, anything that prevents it from working correctly. And that is something that every individual with NF1 is born with, regardless of which features they do or do not eventually develop, um, which is the other reason why it's so important to get that family history is not only can it help guide the diagnostic process being one of the diagnostic criteria, but it can also impact um, one patient's diagnosis is, yes, their diagnosis and it's important for their care, but it can also be important for other family members as well. So with NF1, sometimes it's hard to say, are we not seeing a family history because they didn't inherit it? So 50% of the time, we do see families where there's not a family history. This child is the first one in their family to have NF1 to have um, a harmful or pathogenic variant within the NF1 gene, but the other 50% of the time they did inherit it from one of their parents. And even if it's inherited, sometimes we might not necessarily know there's that family history just because of the variability of the condition. And being that it's genetic, that could also, be, I'm sure, be very challenging for families where you know it's a genetic disease. Oh, um, no, they, that's absolutely true. I've talked to quite a few parents who, as Rachel mentioned, are learning at the time of their child's diagnosis about their own, their own uh, disease status. And there are just, you know, I think there's even, I would even venture to say that sometimes there's a grieving process that comes with that for families because, you know, you're sort of grieving the loss of a healthy childhood, right, for your child in some ways. You're also learning something about yourself that was completely out of your control, but it, it can be a really helpless feeling for parents to sort of be experiencing that almost like a parallel process to their child at the same time. And guilt. We often see, exactly. We often see parents that feel a lot of guilt around that. Yes. And I will say in every genetic counseling appointment, it's very important for me to inform the parent this isn't something that you did or did not do. Mm -hmm. It's not because Absolutely. you ate something during pregnancy or, you know, you did something. But it is very difficult um, as Dr. Robinson was saying, just because, of course, you're naturally going to have that parental guilt, no matter what someone from my end says or doesn't say. But it, NF1 cannot be prevented? No. So at, at this time, there have been advances in some of the treatment of it, but everything is symptom-specific management rather than a cure, per se. Is there still a lot of mystery surrounding NF1? Oh, I think one of the main mysteries, as Chris, as um, Rachel mentioned earlier, is that there is a wide variety of manifestations of the condition. So there are some people 
that they may actually remain very healthy for decades and not develop any tumors, not develop any eye problems, but they have the cafe au lait spots, they have the Lish nodules, they may not need to see very many specialists. Maybe they have a little bit of ADHD. That might be the only thing that they need monitoring and treatment for. While there may be other families where one child has severe developmental problems, another child has tumors that need surgery, another one that may have eye problems that need follow-up. So there's no way to uh, predict um, based on the genetic um, condition or the actual gene deletion or you know abnormality of the gene there's no way to predict what the phenotype in the patient will be which is very frustrating i yeah. think when i was in medical school people were working on that quite a bit to see you know if there was a particular part of the gene that was affected maybe that family was going to have more of a particular type of problem but there is no information at this point um, so that does remain a big mystery in my mind is how you can have you know, the same gene being abnormal, but in different patients, even within the same family, having different complications. Yeah, the genetic mutation, there have been some uh, reports of a genotype-phenotype correlation saying this specific genetic difference causes, or it's more likely to cause these features of the condition, but it's, like Dr. Shaw said, mainly we just don't know, and the exact same variant can look very different within the same family. I will say that one of the benefits to genetic testing or having a molecular variant is that it can inform the patient, yes, you do have a diagnosis, even if they don't yet meet or may never meet clinical criteria, and so they can at least get the resources that they need and be plugged in for proper management. It can also be useful for other family members, because once we know someone has a diagnosis of NF1, we'd say because it has an autosomal dominant inheritance that there's a 50% chance that they're close relatives, so one of their parents or their siblings, and later down the line when they're thinking of, thinking of their own kids, that they also would have NF1. And that also means the opposite, like I like to tell my patients. That also means there's a 50% chance that even though you have NF1, your children won't have NF1. And then again, going back to that variability, even if other family members also have this condition, it doesn't mean they'll have the same experience with the condition. Shafka, tell me about the function of neurofibroma, plexiform, neurofibromas, bone issues, and other important things for our pediatric practitioner listeners to be aware of. So I'm glad you asked about that uh, because that also kind of brings to mind other uh, features of the NF1 condition that are part of the clinical criteria for making the diagnosis. So um, some bony changes, especially in the long flat bones, like in the shin, um, they can be bowed and patients, when you're watching them walk, they may have um, a funny gait. Um, you might want to take some plain x-rays of those patients and see if they need to be evaluated by orthopedics because um, their gait may only become worse as they go through the growth spurt. Um, children with, with NF1 also have a higher rate of scoliosis, and the type of scoliosis that they can develop typically is diagnosed at a younger age, and it can be more severe, and that can lead to significant back pain. I think it's important to realize uh, many pediatricians do a very good job of screening for scoliosis, especially through the years of puberty. Um, as patients go through the growth spurt, that's when we tend to do a lot more of those screens in school and in well-child visits, but a, a patient with NF1 may be m very young, five, six, seven uh, years of age and have developed very severe scoliosis. So if, if you can remember to do that an exam on a younger patient with NF1 and refer them to orthopedics sooner rather than later, uh, many of those patients will require surgery at some point, so it's best that the orthopedic team go ahead and become involved in their care. So those are also um, two very important bony changes. Um, the other nerve, the nervous um, lesions, the nervous system lesions, the cutaneous neurofibromas, oftentimes um, if they're becoming painful or bothersome to the patient, dermatology or plastic surgery may remove them, and that can take care of, of many of those lesions. Um, 
sometimes we've seen in the past that even with good surgery over the years, they may grow back, but the patient may develop some improvement over time. And so it's important to, if they have lesions that are bothersome, irritating, maybe they're in a bad location, that um, dermatology become involved in their care. And then the more deep-seated nerve fibromas, the ones that arise from larger nerves and are called the plexiform neurofibromas. Those are the ones that we are now able to um, offer treatment for. Um, the FDA approved a new medication in uh, 2020, not too long ago, for uh, the treatment of these plexiform neurofibromas. And this class of agents is called uh, MEK inhibitors, M-E-K. And the FDA approval was given to selumetinib to treat um, inoperable um, symptomatic plexiform neurofibromas. And sometimes patients that have these lesions will have chronic pain syndromes, or they may have disfigurement, especially around the head and neck area, um, along the spine, um, the lower extremities. And um, treatment with this oral agent has been shown to help about three-fourths of the patients. And sometimes that help can be actual reduction in the size of the plexiform neurofibroma, or it could be a, a reduction in the amount of deformity, um, or it could be a, a less pain associated with um, the neurofibroma. And this has been a huge boon, um, really nationally and internationally. And so uh, for appropriate patients, we are trying to counsel our families as to the risks and benefits of trying this medication. Um, because it is a very new medication, we don't know exactly all the particulars about which patient may benefit the most, although we tend to think that the younger patients may benefit more than, than older teenagers and young adults. Um, there are trials in teenagers and young adults ongoing now in the country, so you know, five years from now we may have that answer to that question. Uh, we do know, like with any medication, there may be some side effects, um, so we have to do blood work regularly. We have to do heart tests and eye exams regularly to make sure that the patients are not experiencing side effects from the treatment. But overall, um, the medication, even though it is, would be considered in a class similar to chemotherapy, it, it does not cause a lot of the horrible side effects of chemotherapy. So overall, it's uh, fairly well tolerated. And uh, we're still, again, trying to figure out how long patients need to be on the medication and which type of plexiform neurofibroma may benefit the most. So let's take our second case and final case for this podcast episode. A five-year-old um, is brought in by his mom, and the pediatrician notices pain with walking around, leg swelling, and then the patient is seen by ortho and PT. Finally, an X-ray is conducted, an MRI finds enlarged nerves and deeper painful lesions throughout the body. So this is a, a very um, typical uh, situation for patients that have these plexiform lesions because oftentimes when you look at the patients, you don't see a lot on physical exam. You may see the cafe au lait spots, the freckles, but you may not be able to actually feel a big mass. You may not actually see anything out of the ordinary. And so oftentimes it can be a big surprise to the family when you show them the MRI and all the enlarged nerve roots. And um, even children as young as age five can have significant lesions. And when you look at them and you, you see how much... Um, the nerves are affected, you can understand how painful it could be for a child running around trying to keep up with his friends or maybe trying to do PE class. It may be much more uh, easy for them to become injured. And what we don't want is for those children to feel so much discomfort that they don't participate in normal day-to-day -day activities. We want them to be able to be as functional as possible. And so oftentimes we will you know, try to enlist the physical therapists and, and try to provide a plan of activity for the patient and hopefully allow them to return to somewhat normal activities. But it, it can be a difficult management issue, and I certainly do talk to other specialists, such as neurology and orthopedics, to decide if a patient perhaps needs 
a special kind of a brace, or maybe they need to be put on medication such as a, a gabapentin or other medications for chronic pain. Does uh, it affect? Does NF one affect girls and boys equally? Yes, yes, girls and boys, exactly. And you know, as you can imagine, there may be particular activities a girl wants to participate in, such as dance, which may be difficult if they have these expanded nerves. And boys, with you know all the activities and sports in in uh, elementary, middle school, it can be very challenging for them to understand that they may not be able to do everything that they want to do. And you know, obviously, if they are a candidate to be treated with a MEK inhibitor, our hope is that. Uh, you know, treatment starting at a younger age perhaps will be able to preserve function. And I would imagine that's all the more reason why events such as the one you had this weekend are so important. Can you tell me about that event? And are you going to have more of these? Yes. So we were very fortunate to be invited to co-host the Texas NF um, medical Symposium here at the UT Health Science Center in partnership with the Children's Tumor Foundation and the Texas NF Foundation. It's a wonderful annual symposium that is really, the audience um, that it is really targeting is caregivers, parents, and families, but it's really also a great opportunity for healthcare providers to come together who take care of these patients to really talk about what are the advances, you know, in this community as it pertains to medications, as it pertains to um, management, pain management, and even the psychosocial management. So we did have a wonderful conference this past Saturday at the Grehe. Um, we had quite a few caregivers that came, and we even had a few young adult patients that came with their caregiver, with their parent. At the Grehe Cancer Institute. Yes, the Grehe Cancer Institute, which is over here on Floyd Curl near, near campus. Um, it was a great opportunity to really talk about everything from sort of broad strokes around NF and how we treat it to discussion around, you know, what are the new sort of advances in the field and also to really talk about some of the psychology and psychosocial challenges and how we treat those. And do you hope to have more of those events? We do. This event had been virtual due to COVID for the last few years. This was actually the first in-person since the start of the pandemic. And so the Texas NF Foundation it was very well received to kind of welcome that back to an in-person format. And we've, we feel really encouraged that we'll continue to be able to work with them on that wonderful symposium. Crystal, and to all of you here on Pediatrics Now, we like to promote having a life outside of medicine. Can you tell us a little bit of what you like to do outside of medicine to unplug? Crystal, I know you like to hike. We went on a hike. You had a leg injury, and you still did a great job hiking, Thank and we had you. so much fun. <laughs> we did. That was a really – we've got to schedule another uh, yes. hike. But that is definitely um, a love that I've developed during the pandemic. I think it was – you know, a time when everyone was sort of getting cabin fever, and it was a great opportunity to sort of fall in love with nature for me. So that's become uh, one of my big routine activities. The other thing I like to describe myself as is a professional auntie, so you can <laughs> find me at soccer games and volleyball competitions and band. Uh, in fact, I had a band competition this Saturday during oh. the conference, so I was sort of multitasking. So those are probably my two great loves, is just spending time with the little ones in my world and also getting outdoors and enjoying enjoying outside. And here in South Texas, there's so many opportunities to do that with the Texas Hill Country. Uh, Rachel, I understand that you like to bake and do yoga. Yes, so baking is something that is a stress reliever for me, and you get to not think too much about it, and you have a yummy, delicious product at the end of it. Um, and it you have to stay in the present moment in a lot of ways. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I focus in on something, I keep my hands busy, and I get to eat afterwards. So all of my favorite things, um, and then also getting to share with my neighbors or friends and bringing those treats to them. Is there yeah. one thing you'd love to bake, like your favorite? or? Um, I think my favorite thing is anything with fruit. So I like doing banana bread or cobblers. And I like, like natural sweetness and things like that. So that's been my most recent thing. As the fall is approaching, it'll probably switch to more breads. <laughs> 
So, and maybe we could put a recipe in the text if you send me one. Yeah. I'll add that. <laughs> I have a really good focaccia bread recipe I'll put in. Okay, nice. And then yoga helps to de-stress. Yes. So yoga is really nice for me just to kind of relax. I will say I don't do the intense yoga. It's really more of a stretch and meditation sort of yoga. At home? Or yes. So I, right now it's just at home. I've done classes in the past, but... It's just a really good way to decompress and, again, not thinking about too much, but you feel so good afterwards and yes. you realize how tense you are and didn't even realize sometimes. Yes. What about you, Shafka? You like to cook? I do. I have lots and lots of cookbooks, and I think probably my favorite recipes are seafood recipes because I think they don't take as long. Seafood cooks rather quickly, mm -hmm. so you can just go and buy some shrimp on your way home and put a few different spices on it, and it'll be done in about 10 minutes later, and you can put whatever you want next to it. Uh, my kids really love my fettuccine Alfredo sauce, which is not a health food. Mm. Maybe we can put that <laughs> recipe in, too. We'll include recipes for fall. I think, you know, with all three of what you, three of you, what you do, it could you could easily get compassion fatigue because you're what you're doing day in and day out every day. So doing things outside of medicine helps to prevent that. I think so. I, I do think though that this population of patients with NF1, they are they definitely deserve a champion. I've seen them over the years struggle trying to find appropriate providers. And I'm very happy that uh, Dr. Tomlinson uh, felt that it was time to devote to try to develop a program and has supported this effort. And, and that's, of course, Gail Tomlinson, who's the division chief for pediatric hematology and oncology at the University of Texas Health Science Center. Yes, she's been a definite a proponent for all of our cancer predisposition families. But um, I think NF1, you know, is a little bit different. Um, not everybody be develops a cancer, but they d can certainly develop tumors that need treatment. They need surveillance. They need guidance from genetic counselors, they need support from our social workers and psychologists. So I think they definitely deserve um, some attention here in South Texas, and I'm happy to be part of the effort. And one thing I'll say that I think is really restorative about working with this population, you know, you were talking about compassion fatigue, is it, it really feels good to be part of sort of being an anchor or a lighthouse for families that maybe for years have felt like, you know, their voice wasn't being heard or that, you know, their concerns were being dismissed. I find that families get to our clinic, and this is this is a humble brag, but truly I find that families get to our clinic and they feel a sense of relief because they have, you know, a genetic counselor at their disposal who they have their phone number, they have their email, like they can follow up. It's a real relationship. And so I think that's restorative for us as providers, just knowing that Maybe there was a family out there that didn't have hope or that wasn't really sure, and they can come to our clinic and feel secure and know that we're going to give them good care and make sure that they have appropriate referrals. So I think that also, believe it or not, can help with that burnout that we feel because this population is sort of a niche area. It's a, it's a special area, and it can bring some clinical balance to some of the other really heavy stuff that we see in the pediatric cancer world. That's great. Great to hear. What about, um, does anyone have a quote they would like to share? As we were talking about before this, I'm, I'm obsessed with, with quotes. Okay, I'll admit it now. <laughs> Anything come to mind? Um, I mean, I think, I don't know. I think the theme that we've talked about today is that this is a really unique population of patients, but even within that uniqueness, every patient is even more unique. There's so much variability to what you're going to see clinically. There's so much variability to what you're going to see psychosocially. And so I think for me, the, the quote or the thought that comes to mind is one size actually does not fit all, at least not for this patient population, because there are just so many nuances to the diagnosis and to the management of the disease that it's really important to look at each patient individually and at a more granular level to provide the best plan of care. Anyone else have? That was great. I would just say that um, Crystal put it very well, that you know, each patient is unique, and I think that can be a little confusing sometimes to providers out there. So we want to be a resource. You know, if you have any questions, contact Holly. She can 
find us on email or cell phone fairly quickly. Uh, we want to be able to see these patients or to provide uh, the counseling and the testing that they require in a speedy fashion. Uh, we know that there's um, limited resources in the area, and uh, so if, if there's a child in need, uh, we definitely want to hear about it. And is there something that's often missed that you want to mention or like one, you know, I, one point you want to make on that? I think the main thing that, in my experience as an oncologist, that's missed are the eye tumors because they develop at such a young age. If the child isn't seen by ophthalmology, it's very easy to miss that um, in a general pediatrician or, you know, even in my hands. But a well-trained pediatric neurologist or an ophthalmologist um, would be the best person to help identify those optic pathway uh, gliomas and hopefully preserve vision for these children. And once you see those cafe LA spots, the freckling, send to ophthalmology as well. Ophthalmology, neurology, our clinic, so we can um, look at the clinical criteria and discuss the testing. One more thing that I just wanted to mention related to the psychosocial need and the screening is that once we've identified some of these problems, it's going to be really important to empower parents to be an advocate in the school system for these children. They often are going to need some sort of specialized support or accommodations, whether that be a formal diagnosis of a learning disability, which would have to be you know, conducted through um, neuropsychological testing. But in any situation, the advocacy to make sure that the learning environment is um, accommodating and supportive and, and understanding is going to be really important. And so, you know, we've even, we've even um, you know, invited schools and said, hey, do you want us to do an in-service? Do you know what NF is? Do you know what the learning issues are? A lot of so them may not know. Exactly. Exactly. So we try to infuse parents with that information, but we really want to also be advocates for the school system. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that because we do see so many challenges with this population having a, a successful academic experience. So we want to advocate for that. Anything anyone wants to mention before we wrap up that we forgot to talk about? Um, I did want to make sure... I don't know, I don't remember if we explicitly stated Do it. the clinical diagnostic criteria. Sure. And I just want to make sure we just, just a straightforward. Okay. And, here. and you can move that around. Yes. And I think you yeah. did mention it, but it won't, wouldn't hurt to do that. Yeah, because so. I know I mentioned, and Dr. Shaw mentioned a couple of the items from it, or, well, we mentioned all of them at some point, but yeah. just so they're Let's all do it. together. Mm-hmm. You can establish a clinical diagnosis of NF1, which is something that we often do within our clinic. Um, For any patient, you just want to make sure that they have two out of the six features that we mentioned, which includes six or more of those cafe lay spots and children. You want them to be five millimeters in size or larger, and that might change with puberty. And then also freckling under the arms or in the groin having two or more neurofibromas or one plexiform neurofibroma, those Lish nodules we mentioned in the eye, as well as an optic glioma, or some of the very specific skeletal abnormalities we can see, like tibial dysplasia or an abnormality of the orbit. And then also a family history can contribute to a clinical diagnosis as well. Because there is such a variety of what we might see with someone who has NF1, that just highlights the importance of making sure they're taken care of by a multidisciplinary team and can get plugged in with the correct specialists and have personalized management um, because we do have to manage it for each patient and each symptom that that patient has. Thank you. Rachel Wyatt, genetic counselor at University Hospital at UT Health San Antonio. Thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thank you for having me. And also thank you to Crystal Robinson, psychologist, pediatric psychologist. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And Dr. Shafka Shah, thank you also for being here. I appreciate everything that you all have said, and, and it's such an honor to be here with you. Our pleasure. If you're a practitioner, click on the link in this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Our website is pediatricsnowpodcast.com. Please contact me. My email address is on there. 
for episode ideas or questions. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Holly Wayment, and you're listening to Pediatrics Now. And really, it's great to see the progress uh, in the field and, and really to see a preventative therapy that's now recommended for all babies, uh, you know, less than eight months is just really uh, tremendous development. I did not think that um, really that we'd see that. Um, so it's real, uh, really amazing, I think. It's incredible. That's Dr. Michael Odom. That's an episode you may have missed. It's on RSV prevention, where we talk about nirsivimab and new developments in preventing RSV. If you scroll down in the Pediatrics Now feed, that's where you'll find it. Thanks for listening.